Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. This interview with playwright Nikki Silver, along with director John Dixon, was recorded live on air in the KPFA studios with Nikki Silver on the phone and John Dixon in the studio on April 27, 2007. This interview has not been heard since. My guest is playwright Nikki Silver, who is uh, talking to us from New York. My other guest in the studio here is director John Dixon. Nikki Silver is author of a new play, Past Perfect, making its world premiere debut at Theater Rhino through May 20th. John Dixon is the director of that play. John Dixon also directed an earlier play at Theater Rhino by Nikki Silver titled Beautiful Child. Nikki Silver is author of such plays as Pterodactyls, Beautiful Child, Raised in Captivity, a revision for Broadway of The Boys from Syracuse as well, several other plays, The Food Chain. Nikki Silver, let's start with you a little bit. Before we get into this play, a little bit about your history. You were born in Philadelphia but wound up coming to New York to go to NYU, that's correct? This is correct. I was born in Philadelphia. I went to uh, NYU early admission, that way where you avoid 12th grade, you know, and you get your high school diploma after your first year of college. And so I moved to New York when I was 16. And at that point, you went right into the theater department there? I went to what was called, is still called, the Experimental Theater Wing at NYU. And at that point, you wanted to be an actor? No, I don't think I wanted to be an actor. I didn't know. I wanted to have, find some way to have a career in the theater. And the Experimental Theater Wing was very, you know... This is the 70s. I mean, it was 1976 when I was 16, so it was very sort of groovy, and everyone had long hair and ate granola, and people were naked in class all the time. So it was very unstructured in a lot of ways. And since I really didn't know what I wanted to do, that seemed like the right place for me. At what point, uh, then, did you, did you try your hand at playwriting? Well, after I graduated, actually, I wrote a play called Bridal Hunt, my very first play, and it was extremely coarse and filthy, and funny. And I'm Jewish, Nikki Silver, and people thought it was anti-Semitic because I wrote about my parents in what I thought was the most honest way I could. And so people thought this was a violent attack against my people. Um, And when I say my people, I don't know what that means. But anyway, and I gave it to a friend of mine who worked as a receptionist at the Phoenix Theater. And I said, see if you think I can be a writer. And she didn't tell me, but she gave it to, like, the artistic director there, and he loved it, and he did a reading of it. And I thought, my career is launched. And then they went out of business about a week later. So my career was not launched, but that's how I got started. At that point, you just started writing play after play. How did that work? I didn't know. I mean, I had to earn a living, so I worked in stores, in Barney's, and I worked at a store called Reminiscence, and I was a waiter. But I eventually happened upon someone who had seen the play Bridal Hunt and commissioned a play from me. I think he paid $600, and it was a terrible, terrible play. And he rented this space on 11th Avenue, and this theater, and he put it up. And the man who ran the theater said to me, you know, I think you can write, and I can, there are times when I can't rent the theater. 
would you like to do plays here when I have no tenant? So like twice a year, I would get a phone call saying, usually because he couldn't rent in August, the dead of summer, and usually around the holidays, it's very hard for him to rent at Christmas. So I would get a call and he would say, I have four weeks open in six weeks. So I would sit down and write a play and I would put it on with my friends and we rehearsed it. We all had day jobs and we paid for the rehearsal space and we would build the sets and we would hang the lights. And I directed them. I didn't know any directors. I probably did between 14 and 20 plays in seven years. And then I was very, very tired. And some of those plays were just awful. Many of them were quite terrible. But some of them have gone on to have very long lives. Fatman and Skirts was produced at the Magic Theater, and it was written under exactly those auspices. I knew I, we didn't have any money, obviously, so they were all made for very, like, very, very cheap sets, very small casts. So some of them have gone on to great afterlife, and some of them died appropriately at the time. So I was very tired after, like, seven years, and I wrote a play, and I thought, I'm not going to do this. I'll, I'll send this out. And I really hadn't been sending plays out. I, was too, I had an agent, but I was too afraid to call him. He was a very nice man, but he looked sort of like the old year. He had a long white beard, and I was mortified of him. And so I sent the play Pterodactyls out. A bunch of theaters wanted to do it, but the Vineyard Theater didn't say, let's fix it first. They just said, let's do it. They thought it was fine the way it is. They liked the way it is. And it was a big hit. A couple of questions then. First of all, first of all, that's yeah. an interesting comment you made. They were the ones who said, don't fix it. Yeah. On these other ones, when you'd send them out or talk to people, they'd go, this is good, but you got to do this, this, and this, and the, the other thing. Yeah. And all of which might compromise your own vision. My vision, blurred and double as it is, was still my vision. Well, I was 32 at the time by then, but I would have made any changes. As a matter of fact, there's a, an important theater called Playwrights Horizons in New York. You sure. know, they've won a bunch of Pulitzers out of there. And the artistic director at the time, who is no longer the artistic director, said to me, I love the play, but I don't like what was identified as the third act, and I don't think you should have any of those biblical references in it and lose the Brecht poem. And I went home overnight and rewrote the whole play. I was very desperate to get a production, and he still didn't do it. So the vineyard <laughs> didn't say any of those things. So you stayed with the Vineyard, and, and Pterodactyls was, I think, 1994. Reading the synopsis, yeah, you're right. In reading the synopsis of Pterodactyls, it's a black comedy about a, a dysfunctional family of alcoholics with an HIV-positive son and a lot of secrets, which sounds to me a great deal like past perfect. I'm a very different person than I was then, and Pterodactyls is actually a good deal more abstract. It just its tone, and it's sort of more reckless in, it, in its theatricality, and it's a lot more abstract. The plays are actually about quite different things, sure. but they do have the same initial, they have, if you were just to say, like, what's the plot? Kid comes home. But, and, and dad isn't dying, of course, in pterodactyl. Death actually does play a role, but, you know, in all of your works, we find cannibalism, incest, adultery, AIDS, well, murder. You don't find cannibalism in all of my works. No, no, in some of them. All right, you're right. The good you're ones. Right. right, right, in the good ones. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you but so much. The question then is, when you're working on a play, how do you bring in the various elements? How does a play come together? When I'm asked to speak at classes and that sort of thing, which I think that I am at all as an indictment upon the educational systems in this country, but when I am, I usually have to explain that I think writing is a process wherein you know enough before you start. I don't start until I know a good deal. You know enough 
so that your unconscious is free to function. But you don't know so much that your unconscious isn't stimulated. So before I sit down, I know what, I'm, what ideas I'm exploring in the play. I know who the people are. I know where it starts. I have an idea of where it ends. It may change. And I have to know a good deal about it. But if I know everything, then there's no unconscious connection. It's just I'm just connecting dots. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that's pretty much when I've talked to, to novelists, that's more or less where the best ones go anyway. They kind of have an idea, beginning and end, but the characters, you almost start channeling them. They're, they speak to you rather than you deciding what they're going to say. Is, is that kind of similar? They very much, very much so. They take over. In the case of Past Perfect, then you knew where it was going to begin with these children coming back and their father is dying and they don't get along with their mother, and you kind of knew that we would find out what happens to the father and that there were secrets. Did you know exactly what those secrets were? Did you know at that point that the son would bring home a boyfriend, things like that? I think I knew that the son would bring home a boyfriend. I have to remember because time has passed, but I think I knew that a son would bring home a boyfriend. But I didn't know necessarily what all the secrets were, and I didn't know, for instance, I didn't know that we would have the kind of ghost that we have. So there's lots of things I didn't know, but I did know that, I mean, I always do like, I like a play to start with. I like to know where we are, and I like an event, and in this event, it's, of course, Dad's dying that has brought these people together who would not normally want to be together. It makes them more interesting. So but I don't think I knew a whole lot more. Like I, I, so I knew who they were. I knew what their problem. I knew he was an actor. I knew she was often married. But I didn't know what all the secrets were, no. The, I didn't know Dad had, should I say it? Won't it spoil sure. the suspense? <laughs> I didn't know Dad had raped Mom, for instance. In terms of the construction of a play, the Act One, the Act Two, in Hollywood they give a big list of things that are supposed to happen in a film, almost, uh, you know, kind of a, a framework, mm-hmm. you know, like boy wants girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy re-gets girl, and various frameworks. Is there a specific framework in plays that either you have or you were told about? I was never told about it. I didn't, because I didn't study playwriting, I really, I always felt that doing all those plays at that little theater is how I learn to write the kinds of plays that I like, that I want to see. And I don't think anyone can do more than that. You can't write plays that everyone wants to see. You don't know what everyone wants to see. You have to hope you're representative. So I'm sure there are rules written down somewhere, but nobody told them to me. I have a strong internal sort of sense of structure, I think. Past Perfect is two acts, but, for instance, Pterodactyls is three acts, even though there is one intermission. It has to do with making sure that climaxes are in the right place, that secrets are revealed, that, that, that action builds to the right moment. And I have worked, as they say, in Hollywood. And even some of that work was writing. And there it is much more. I mean, there, on page 30, this has to happen. On page 60, this has to happen. So that by page 90, that has happened. It's much more organic than that, I think. But it ends up happening anyway. Well, John Dixon here, you've now directed two of Nikki's plays. When you're looking at that, do you see that kind of organic nature? How do you view dealing with climaxes or secrets when you're looking at a play like that? Are you almost seeing those same beats, you think? It really depends on the material. I think with Nikki's plays, the, the, the structure of the writing is so surprising that when things are revealed, it happens in a way that's... Um, that is surprising, and so you sort of go, you trust the writing, really. Nikki's plays for me are, are often the, the most fun to direct, and quite often, 
not easiest, but easier than most because of how well he structures scene work. To correct the record, I, this is my third Nicky Silver play. Okay. I, I directed uh, The Maiden's Prayer, one of his earlier plays several years ago. Do, do you see a difference in his work between the, that early play and today then? Sure, but the style is still structurally the same in terms of, uh, I mean, sure, the evolution has happened, but he's still the master of, of the monologue. Uh, no one writes a monologue like Nicky Silver. And the quick dialogue, his elegant, uh, pared-down dialogue is constant throughout. But I think... Structurally, this is a different arc of how the story is told, particularly the flashback element in Past Perfect. Workshopping is generally the way most playwrights figure things out. This play was not workshopped. Never did a workshop. I did one workshop in my whole life. Don't well, believe in them. We did a reading at the Rhino, but it wasn't a proper workshop. Right. We just rehearsed for a couple of days and then put it up for an audience just to hear I'll it do some readings sometimes. I've done readings of plays of mine, but those readings are usually for a theater to hear the play as opposed to, I don't think you learn anything from a reading, and I don't think you particularly learn much from a workshop. Hey, like them apples. But how do you feel then? I mean, you, you were not able to make it out here to San Francisco. No, I had, no, and I'm sad, sad, sad about it, but go on. But that means that... You know, you never actually saw your play produced. Do you even know before the play is seen once whether it's going to work or not? Can you really know that? I heard the play a couple times in New York. I did do a couple readings, so I have a sense of what the play is. But I don't think you know it anyway. I don't think you know it after a workshop. I don't think you ever know it. And I don't think you know it necessarily very much from night to night because it's, a very, it's very much a living thing. But you do have a sense of whether or not it's working for you. Years and years ago, before I had a, any professional productions when I was doing those plays at that little theater, there was a, a theater in New York called Circle Rep, and they're gone now, but they were very famous. Lanford Wilson came out of Circle Rep and a lot of great writers. They had this thing called the Playwrights Project. They invited like 15 playwrights in New York City, and we would meet once a week, and there was a moderator, and you would bring your play, and they provided the actors, and they would read it, and then they would ask to talk about it. And... The playwrights would usually say, well, here's what I want to find out from you, or we would just talk about it in general. And I was just as mean as could be <laughs> to everybody. I just, they, I just didn't understand. I remember one person, the opening stage direction of their play said, the stage is a vortex. And when we talked about it two hours later, I said, to be honest, I stopped listening after I heard the stage was a vortex because I didn't know what it meant. I mean, is it black? Is it white? What the hell does that mean, a vortex? So when it came time for my play, I brought in pterodactyls, and we read it. They read it, and afterwards the moderator said, what would you like us to discuss? And I said, nothing. I said, I watched the audience. I can tell when they were bored, when they were interested, when they laughed. I know what made sense to me. I could tell what made sense to them by looking at them. I said, I, I didn't need to discuss it. So I'm very skeptical as to the whole developmental process. However, you weren't here to watch the audience opening night. No, but I did intend to be. That wasn't by choice, really. But what happens then? I mean, John, I mean, are you able to, say, take notes now and say, you know, Nikki, X, Y, and Z, maybe you might think about making certain changes? I certainly think if Nikki would be open to that, we haven't talked about the possibility of, of me offering that kind of feedback at all. I would be happy to if, if he wanted to do that, Nikki. In general, were I there, I would have been probably making minor yeah, changes. Right. I can't imagine I'd say, let's cut that character. I mean, you do usually in previews, you know, cut things and rearrange things a little bit. But I wasn't there. But I think whenever John has asked me even something, I've generally responded. I mean, he hasn't asked me to make real changes. But whenever, even when he's asked me my take on something, what I think about something, I've generally said, this is what I think. But I don't know that it's the law or the rule or you decide what you look at and tell me what you think. One of the 
the best things that Nikki said to me when I asked him a, a question about a, a character. He said, let the actor decide that. Uh, and I thought that's such a great thing for, for a writer to do, to say, yes, here's the structure and here's my story, but it's nothing without the actors giving life to the characters. Well, then, then at that point, of course, it would be a different production if things aren't absolutely clarified in the text. A different production, two different productions, and one, the production could be a real hit and a great play, and the next, it could be an absolute disaster. Sure, I think that also depends on the take the director has on the piece. For me, this play, yes, it is hysterically funny, but it's it's a drama more than anything. And I think for me, I turned the corner of the production when I accepted to the to myself and to the producers when I said, you know, this isn't a comedy. It's right. very funny. It's hysterically funny. But let me direct the play and not a genre. So as soon as that was made clear to me and I accepted that, the play changed and the, I think the production uh, grew because of that. Michael Frayn once told me that he saw a production, you know, in the outback of England of Noises Off where nobody laughed. But in a drama, usually there's a little bit more to guide you, isn't there? I, I guess so. I consider myself a comedy director. That's sort of where I find myself most uh, frequently. And so I gauge the response of the audience in the laughter. So I did a, a drama last fall, and it was so frustrating to me because no one was laughing. It wasn't funny, so they shouldn't be laughing, but... You can always rely on Nikki's place to bring laughter. I think I've written, I think, two comedies. I've written mostly a lot of very grim plays with a lot of jokes. Food Chain is a comedy. But for the most part, I, I don't think I write comedies. I write very grim, serious, sad little plays with a lot of jokes. Well, what happens to you, Nikki, if you go see a production and it's like Michael Frayn's reaction, nobody it laughs? It happens or... constantly. Really? What do you and do? What do you do? You put a big insincere smile on your face and you go thank you all I can you've all worked so hard thank you so much and when you give your interviews you say wasn't it wonderful because <laughs> they did their best particularly in Europe and I've gone to see a lot of productions of plays of mine in Europe Famine and Skirts which did not do well at the Magic Theater ran for three years in Berlin I thought it was the most vile thing I ever saw but it was a big hit the Germans loved it so I couldn't bear it but you smile and you go, oh, thank you. I'm so glad you liked it. That's what you do. How about the, the revision of The Boys from Syracuse? How did that go? That, that did not get great reviews. I did fine. The production didn't get very good reviews. It was a very cursed idea to begin with. There had just been sort of a, a, a concert version of Boys from Syracuse that the press had loved. So they really didn't care what we, what we had to say. And my contribution, which was perfectly well liked, was very minimal. I really just revised things. It was really fun. I did it because there are so few real big musicals and, and the gestation for a big musical is literally five or six years. So when the roundabout called me and said, do you want to revise the book and we're going next season? I thought, well, this opportunity will never happen again to, you know, to have a big orchestra and be at rehearsals with dancers and that it was fantastic fun, but it was not a Stellar production <laughs> through no one's fault. Everyone stunk. They were all lovely people. I put a smile on my face and I said, thank you. You all did your best and it was lovely. Did you know when you were looking at the uh, previews what was going to happen? I knew at the first day of rehearsal. Really? Yeah, sure. I knew when I said yes, pretty much. I knew through casting. I knew during the casting process. This was doomed. But wow. I also knew, and this was the case, that the book writer is generally not beaten up. 
And certainly the person who revises the book certainly isn't beaten up. In a revival, it's the director who usually takes it on the chin and did in that case. And he's gone on to have, you know, Scott Ellis is a big success. That was not his shining moment. But I knew that I wouldn't get in trouble. Nikki Silver, when you're working on a play and you're working on the dialogue, is the dialogue that you're working on, is it pretty much the, the unconscious or what, what goes into the polishing of dialogue? The first Passive dialogue is, can be very unconscious and is written very quickly, often. If I know what a scene is about and what the two characters want, and usually I do, or I wouldn't be at the scene, then it can go very quickly, and it's usually very sloppy because I think it faster. I'm a very bad typist and a very bad speller. And then it'll be two or three more passes before I even think of it really as a first draft of a scene. And um, John can tell you, I- I've been known, I said, I'm sending a script, it has 43 changes, I bet you can't spot any of them. I mean, I move the word the, and I decide this shouldn't be an apostrophe S, it should have the word is. I reread the dialogue over and over and over and over and make very tiny changes that are almost imperceptible. Do you read the dialogue aloud to get a sense? Most of the time. And John, at your point, okay, you get the dialogue. Uh, and you do a first run-through. At that point, when you're doing that run-through, what's going on in your mind as you're watching the actors? I am looking to them to bring the roles to life. Casting for me is, is the, 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 the biggest job you can do to pick the right cast. In is, this is, particular case, what yeah. did you have to work with? Obviously, it wasn't a final draft, or was it? Of the play? Yeah. I approached it as a final draft. Okay. Uh, I, Nikki said, if you have questions, please call me. If there are, are train wrecks, please let's discuss them. But for me, that was the final draft, the script that we went into first rehearsal with. So at the point that you've selected the actors, that's the point where you're just going to trust them with whatever they're going to do? Yeah. Actors quite often will um, immediately go to an extreme. Take, for example, Clayton's character, Seth. Clayton, I wanted to play him very sort of fey and and big, and it was good for him to experience that, but ultimately wasn't how the character ended up. There are flashes of that, and there are, are, are... samplings of that kind of character type, but the character was, was more than just that. So if I would have just let him go, he would have been playing this hugely fey character and not had a sense of, of realness about him. Nikki Silver, when you're working with a character and you're developing that character's dialogue, how much of the character's history beyond the play do you actually know? And then, John, at your end, does any of that information come to you, or do you invent an entirely different, or the actor invent an entirely different history? By the time I've finished a draft, I know everything about every character. And when I say I know it, I mean I have my histories. Unless they create a problem, I, w- I would never impose them on a director or an actor. I would say choose what works best for you. But I have a very strong sense of who they are and and their background, where they went to school, if they went to school, and their sex lives and parentage and everything. But I wouldn't discuss it with an actor. And, you, and really, usually, if they ask me a question, I'll say, well, what is the most fruitful answer for you? As, uh, for you? What's going to you know, work for you in terms of conflict? Yeah, I would mirror what Nikki said, and I love that he, he, he has done that in real time for us. When Clayton and I had lunch with Nikki uh, several months ago before the play started rehearsals, Clayton asked some very specific questions, and Nikki said just that to him. 
pick the best thing that gets you to point from point A to point B. But after. I'm very precious about the actual language. Of course, no, and I'm just, just we're talking mostly backstory and, and things that aren't literally represented in the play. The actor has to find the intention that works best for him and the history that works best for him. And when I say him, I mean them, her, whatever. But don't screw up a word. Don't go changing language without discussing it. Well, then, have you ever thought about, say, writing a novel or a short story where you wouldn't have to have that collaboration? Or I, really, yeah. I really can't even read anything longer than a recipe, so I can't imagine I would have the patience to write a novel. Now a broad question for both of you. Uh, Nikki Silva, where do you see drama in America today? The theater is in a bit of a sorry state. Everything goes in cycles, and when I got to New York, it was a very experimental period and plays were, I think, more daring in the 70s and in the 80s. And as things got more expensive, plays got safer and safer and safer. There are all, virtually no plays on Broadway now. Everything is off-Broadway. And so that's picked up the slack. And so that has been forced to become more safe. Now, this has been a blessing to a lot of regional theaters because writers do go to regional theaters when they wouldn't previously. While people decry television, and there is such an enormous amount of absolute detritus, I feel so classy having used the word detritus, feel there's an enormous amount of slop, that's more like me, on television. There's also, I think, some of the best writing going on on television. I think The Sopranos, and I look at the credits of TV shows, and I see Eric Overmeyer, and I see play people who really are playwrights first. And while that's great for TV, it's not so good for the theater. John Dixon, let me ask you the question about theater now, since you are working in a regional yeah. theater. I, I would agree wholeheartedly with Nikki that because of the Disneyfication of Broadway and then trickling down from there, it's just so expensive to get anything done that um, people are, are sacrificing the art, and we are losing writers to to mediums that can pay them better, frankly. And it's, it's a sad state to feel you're part of a dying art form. What's sad to me particularly is how safe everything has to be now. Yeah. Everything has to be linear and sort of kitchen sinky and safe safe, safe. And that's boring to me as an audience member, but that's what everything has become. I hate safe plays and I don't like to do them. So when a play like Past Perfect comes along that isn't safe, that, that does screw with time and place and people say things that you're not supposed to say to each other, particularly people that you've given birth to, I think that for me is, is uh, those ex exciting experiences are pinnacle. I don't want to bite the hand that I hope someday will feed me. So uh, I do think that I think that the critical, the general critical atmosphere in New York has become downright malignant. There was a time, I remember, again, I'm going back to the years that formed my aesthetic, when For Colored Girls Who Considered Suicide was on Broadway. First of all, that wouldn't happen now. And Pacific Overtures ha had just opened. And I remember the New York Times Review very clearly, a sentence in it, because it's something that I've always remembered as important. And it, it describes the show as attempting to soar. And it doesn't always manage it. In fact, and I'm paraphrasing, of course. In fact, sometimes it falls with a thud. But it always attempts, and that's thrilling to watch. That was the critical atmosphere, was trying something exciting and daring uh, and new was worthwhile. Now, the general critical atmosphere in New York, which does trickle out through the country, because if New York puts a stamp on something, that's the stamp it has. And the, uh, the general critical atmosphere in New York seems to me to be much more simply 
consumer advocacy. You'll like this. You won't like that. But more than that, destructive, catty and destructive, as opposed to supportive of the, genre, of the form itself, that this is good for the theater. Even if this play doesn't quite work or that musical doesn't quite work, it's an exciting thing because they're trying something so new. That, that seems to be gone. Now, because maybe it's because it's so expensive, they simply say, it doesn't quite work, and so you should save your money. Do you plan on taking Past Perfect to New York at some point? At the moment, I'm writing my obituary, and it's dated for a week from tomorrow. So I don't know. I really don't know. And Nikki Silva, you working on other plays? you have anything else coming up? I'm working on something at the moment, but not a play. I'm always, you know, one has to always be working on something, or inertia overcomes you, and you just turn into a big old blob. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast.